Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evil doers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Please be seated. Thanks, Greg. Well, thank you very much, Greg, and uh, for being the only person who was standing with me at the beginning of that hymn. So I was particularly grateful for that. I also stood at the wrong moment, but there you go. It's all right. If you feel at all embarrassed about being in church this morning, you're in good company. I was embarrassed at that moment, so you're fine. Um, we're looking at Psalm 14. You'll find it in your worship folder. Just turn back one page from the Immortal Invisible uh, hymn we just sang. And uh, it's also right there in the middle of the Bible, Psalm 14. It's wonderful, isn't it, to have had the stars with us today? Wasn't that a great joy to see them um, praising and rejoicing? Isn't that good? It's amazing, amazing ministry. So... Well, the title for the sermon this morning is The Existence of God, and that might strike you as a slightly strange title to give to a sermon on Sunday morning, given the fact that presumably we do believe in the existence of God, otherwise why would we be here, you know? Um, But this is the second in a series of um, sermons where I am asking questions that uh, you all ask me. So I will receive uh, emails or phone calls sometimes from the parents, sometimes from the college students themselves, people who have gone off to university, and they come back and they ask some questions about me. We looked last week at the reliability of the Bible, and so we uh, tackled that question. And this week we're looking at the existence of God, and this is another question that people do uh, ask me, and hence I'm dealing with a question that is actually... Um, before us commonly. By the way, research shows that about 89% of Americans believe in God. So that's a vast majority still. Um, But since uh, 1980, those who are born since 1980, there has been, statistics show, a gradual uh, decline, not a massive decline, but a decline of those born after 1980 believing in God. So this is a relevant um, theme and a relevant uh, topic. So what is Psalm 14? Psalm 14 is a hymn. It is a song, like most of the Psalms. And in particular, almost ironically, humorously, Psalm 14 is a hymn, a song, to the atheist. So if an atheist... Uh, It begins by saying, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, that is someone who does not believe in God. 
If an atheist was to sing a hymn or a song, what hymn or song would they sing? And the psalm is saying this kind of song, this kind of hymn. It is clearly important to the Bible because as far as I know, this is the only chapter in the whole of the Bible that is repeated. Psalm 14 also occurs as Psalm 53. There are a few minor differences. In particular, uh, the name for God that in this psalm is the Lord. Uh, in Psalm 53, is translated as God, a different name for God, Elohim. Other than that, and a few minor differences, they are basically the same. Clearly, the Bible is saying this is important. If an atheist was to be religious, what kind of hymn would they sing? Uh, Actually, atheists often are a little bit religious. Uh, When I was younger, we uh, went off to the former Soviet Union fairly soon after the Berlin Wall had uh, fallen down. And uh, there in Moscow, we visited what is known as Lenin's Mausoleum, right there in Red Square. It's a very large structure in the middle of this massive, um, massively impressive political center. And there in the mausoleum is, well, Lenin, at least his body, uh, carefully looked after each night by a small army of experts so that you can stand in line and pay your respects to Lenin. It is a shrine to an atheist. We seem inevitably to end up being in some way or other religious or desiring some sort of hero figure or some sort of ultimate ideology. In fact, there is a rather tiny movement of people who get together on Sundays to meet together and sing hymns and all that, and they are atheists. I don't know about you, but if I didn't believe in God, I would uh, find something else to do on Sunday morning. If an atheist was to sing a religious song, what would they sing? Psalm 14. It is in three sections. First, what they say, verse 1. Second, what we do, verses 2 to 6. And then third, what God does in verse 7, what they say, what we do, and what God does. First, what they say, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, that is not a very flattering way to describe someone who doesn't believe in God as a fool. In fact, if that is you this morning, you may end up being a little offended by this psalm. How outrageous. Surely there's people who go to church who believe in their invisible friend who are fools. 
Not me, who's so rational and only believes in what he can see and taste and touch. But as we go through this psalm, I want to urge you to think. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. It is a little bit offensive. It reminds me of uh, the story of the great Southern Baptist preacher, W.A. Criswell. I probably pronounced his name entirely wrong. You can correct me afterwards. I should say, like, Yal Criswell or something. I don't know. W.A. Criswell. W.A. Criswell was a great preacher and a godly man. He was famous for many things. One of them was uh, preaching often in a white suit. I should try that sometime. It might cheer things up. Another piece of famous advice he once gave to some seminarians uh, was that uh, he was asked uh, what was the secret of his long and effective ministry and he replied the secret was being able to minister to women. Not a bad piece of advice. Women are very important in the ministry of College Church and often if we're honest women do things better than some of us men. But the particular thing that I'm reminded about with regard to W.A. Criswell was one Sunday after the Soviet astronaut had gone for the first time into outer, outer space, obviously an atheist. And there he was in his little spaceship, and the media had been recording every word of his and broadcasting it around the world as he had given testimony to his experience and one of the things that this man had said was that he had been to the heavens and he had looked around and he had not seen God now by the way that is of course a very literalistic view of what we Christians mean by heaven uh, we do not mean uh, by heaven, and we do not think uh, by uh, God and heaven, that God is somehow hiding behind the moon somewhere. Heaven is another dimension. Actually, physics these days tends to think there are many different universes. But anyway, there uh, was uh, W.A. Criswell, the Sunday after this famous statement had been reported of the Soviet atheist astronaut. He'd gone to the heavens, he looked at the heavens, and he had not seen God. And therefore, of course, ergo, God does not exist. So quick as a flash, W.A. Criswell gets to his pulpit the next Sunday and relays this story and says, Well, I'll tell you this. If that Soviet astronaut had taken his helmet off, he would have seen God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. It doesn't sound very kind. Not Minnesota nice. Now, I am not going to be, as we go through this psalm, recording the standard apologetics for the existence of God. Cosmological, ontological arguments. Um, my wife, when I preached on Saturday night, reminded me that I missed out her favorite teleological 
um, you know, and uh, is this presuppositional evidentialist? I'm not going to be doing any of that. Uh, you know, when, we, when I mention cosmological, ontological, all the seminarians in the church get very excited. And the rest of you begin to switch off. Instead, I am taking the truly radical approach of asking myself, what does the Bible say? And it begins by telling us that the fool is the one who is uttering in his heart, there is no God. How can that be the case? Surely atheists are the intellectuals. But the argument being made is that the very utterance of language, which is a gift from God, the very logic which is being used, which is a reflection of the logos, should by itself persuade the thinking man or woman that the material universe is not only matter. The fool says in his heart there is no God and by saying that denies the speech giver and by arguing that denies the one who is logos who makes argument. There are some particular things that are very often commonly said these days, not just in the heart, but proposed externally. I'm just going to mention a few of them. Uh, It is often said today that uh, science has disproved God. So in the psalm, the fool says in his heart, and then the Lord looks down and goes, you're kidding, that's not true. Science has disproved God. Well, is that actually the case? Uh, Statistics do show that only 7% of uh, the National Academy of Scientists in America, that is the elite group of scientists in America, only 7% believe in God, which is not a large number. On the other hand, statistics also show us that 63% of physicists believe in God. And among all professional scientists, um, physicists, chemists, biologists, among all professional scientists in America, 43% believe in God. In fact, more striking than that, obviously those statistics reflect broadly the general concurrence in our population, but more striking than that is this set of statistics, which was recently done in a fairly Um, a fairly recent survey just a decade or so ago was a mirror image of exactly the same survey that was done in 1916. 1916, 63% of physicists, 43% of scientists believe in God. End of the 20th century, exactly the same set of statistics. Now, of course, you know how people can use statistics the Times, when it was announced that really there'd be no change in the number of scientists believing in God, said as their um, heading for the article, scientists are still keeping their faith. And at the same time, another newspaper said, disbelief proves to be constant among scientists. 
What can we say these statistics at least mean? At least we can say that a century of scientific progress, for which we are all glad, microphones, (laughs) cars, airplanes, air conditioning, for which we are all glad, has basically made no difference to the number of scientists believing in God. Clearly, there's another factor at work. By the way, you don't have to be a a literal seven-day young earth creationist to believe in God, in the God of the Bible. Some people are literal seven-day young earth creationists. The Lord bless you if that is you. Some people are not. The Lord bless you too. (laughs) Augustine, who... um, lived a long time before Charles Darwin, so he was not trying to respond to Charles Darwin. (laughs) Augustine was not a literal seven-day young earth creationist. And it was good enough for Augustine, I guess it's good enough for, for other people. Uh, Some uh, atheists say everything is relative anyway. In other words, okay, so you can believe in God in your own private world, but it doesn't mean it's true. Everything is relative. I heard uh, one university commencement speaker say, it is absolutely true that there is no absolute truth. Hold on, help me. Now that man is, I won't tell you his name, but that man is a brilliant man. Put that in your relativistic pipe and smoke it. To say it is an absolute truth that everything is relative is to make an absolute truth statement that there are no absolute truth statements. Or very often today it is said, religion is the cause of all the wars in the world. Well... Let's think about that. And there's good reason to say that today. For very clearly, some kinds of very sick religion are at least being today catalytic for violence and horror. But again, would you think with me, religion is the cause of all the wars in the world and therefore God doesn't exist. Hold on here. Even if it were the case that religion is the cause of all the wars in the world, which it is not, as I will attempt to show you in just a moment. Even if it were the case, would that mean that God does not exist? Mosquitoes are the cause of malaria in the world. Does that mean that mosquitoes don't exist? Just because I don't like the effects of something doesn't mean it's not true. Just because something doesn't please me doesn't mean it's not reality. 
I don't happen to like my options in this current cycle of uh, the uh, election for the next American president. Does that mean that neither Trump nor Clinton exist? No, it doesn't. But it is also not true that religion is all the cause of all the wars in the world. Certain kinds of sick religiosity have been catalytic for violence, yes. But then, what about atheism? To mention just a couple, Pol Pot, whose killing fields murdered thousands. An atheist. Stalin makes Pol Pot look like just a beginner. Murdered millions. An atheist. No, the cause of all the wars and even the world is not religion or atheism. It is you and me. It is people. So first, what they say, according to the psalm, is foolish. Second then, what we do, verses 2 to 6. This is the effects of this kind of denial of the existence of God. Verses 2 to 6. Verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Now I want you to realize as I give my heading for this part of the psalm that it is what we do. What we do. Not them over there, but what we do. And the reason why I'm interpreting this part of the psalm that way is because Paul in Romans chapter 3 interprets this psalm that way. He uses these verses along with some others from the Old Testament to prove that all of us are like us sinners and stand under the just condemnation of God and need therefore to believe in Jesus to be saved. It is what we do. In other words, Many atheists are wonderfully kind people. I have family members who do not believe in the existence of God. I have friends who do not believe in the existence of God. Not everyone who denies that God exists behaves like this. But the human condition that we all naturally incline towards is functional atheism. We functionally want to live as if God did not exist, so that therefore we can do what we want. 
as uh, it was uh, Dostoevsky who put it like this. If God does not exist, everything is permitted. Many atheists behave kindly because they are brought up to behave kindly. That's what humanism is. It's Christianity without Christ. But we all naturally deny that God has any rights over our lives so that we can then live how we want. If you take away the proposition of the truth of the sovereign God who is good, dictatorship will rise. And what will prevent dictatorship is the proposition of the truth that the sovereign God is good and does exist. For therefore, even the most powerful man has a moral law to which he must submit. That is why the psalmist puts it like this, you would shame the plans of the poor. If I can deny that God rules me, therefore I can pray on the weak and the disadvantaged. Whereas we this morning are celebrating how Christians take care of those who are not powerful. Because we worship a sovereign and good God. In fact, this denial, this functional atheism, as it takes place increasingly in society and as it takes place in the individual's life, leads to, well, the psalmist puts it like this. Verse 5, great terror. One of my uh, heroes uh, was uh, Winston Churchill hero for many people in the Western world, a great man. As far as I can tell, and I hope I improve wrong one day, but as far as I can tell, I've read several biographies of Winston Churchill, as far as I can tell, he did not have a personal faith in Jesus. He operated out of a broadly speaking Christian worldview and was a great man, But as far as I can tell, he never knew God for himself. Uh, Churchill was once asked why he didn't go to church. He replied, I went to church so often as a child, I believe I have stored up enough church-going credit for the rest of my life. Which shows that he did not understand True faith. I don't give a rip about you coming to a church building. I want you to encounter the living God. A great man, but it is said, and indeed well known, that the last two weeks of his life were terrible. 
this great man was facing the reality of his own mortality. To dust he would return. In those last two weeks, Billy Graham, faithful as ever, went to visit Winston Churchill. And of course, Billy shared with him the gospel. And it is said that at the end of it, Winston Churchill replied, Oh, I'm too old for all that now. A great comedian who made us all laugh. If you want to do well in life and you have the gift of making people laugh, they will pay you well for it. There's so much sadness in this world. We enjoy a couple of hours of just good laughter. He had that gift. At the end of his life, leaving his mansion to go to hospital for his final illness. He confessed to his wife, I'm terrified. As well he should have been. I don't know what you think is the prevailing sin of this generation of preachers. Is it um, moral compromise that unfortunately, sadly, sometimes hits the headlines? Is it a fascination with celebrity and fame? You know, how many YouTube hits you're getting this week? I can see you're scrolling down your mind a whole list of potential prevailing sins. My guess is that at least numbering among those egregious errors is the tendency not to preach the wrath of God. We in this world as functional atheists denying the existence of God and his right to rule over us stand under the judgment of God. That does not mean that every particular suffering that we experience is a direct one-to-one reflection of a particular individual sin. Oh, no, no, no. What it means is, well, we have an answer to another question that is often posed to us. Why, if God is loving and if he is all-powerful, does all this happen in the world? Well, the answer is, God is also holy. And the world stands under his judgment. And one day that judgment will be fulfilled. And we must flee from the wrath of God and hide ourselves in Christ which is what the psalmist now does in verse 7. So first we've had what they say, verse 1, then verse 2, what we do, and now uh, verse 7, what God does, which is save, and it generates great joy. Verse 7, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. 
When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. So this has been a hymn to the atheist, and it has been a little depressing at times, because after all, when you really face reality, what do you have to be happy about as an atheist? To dust you are, to dust you will return. Happy song. Or as Ecclesiastes puts it, meanness, 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 says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Or if you want to cheer yourself up, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Hardly a cheery song at the end of things. But now the psalm switches to a Christian song. And it is happy, joyful. Starts with prayer. Oh, that salvation would come. David is praying for God to save. Here is the difference between religion and real Christianity. Religion says, obey and you may one day be saved. Christianity says, God saves. And now you want to obey. Oh, that salvation would come. Christian prayer. Then confidence, when God restores, not if, when. Do you think things have got too bad in our culture for God to ever be able to turn them back again? I love the story of the last great Welsh revival. The miners when they took their pit ponies down the mine, would use, let us say, colorful language to get the pit ponies to do what they were meant to do, right? When the miners were converted, they cleaned up their language as they were saved. And it is said that those pit ponies could no longer understand what the miners were telling them to do. Do you think things have got too bad for God to save, to restore? Before the second great awakening, Harvard Chapel was empty. No one would go. No one believed that stuff. Before the first great awakening in England, moral decay was so prevalent, starting from the top All the way to the bottom, the preachers of the day, you can read their sermons, basically spent most of their time bemoaning how bad things were. Until Whitfield and Wesley turned up and started preaching good news of salvation. Do you think things are too bad? And they can never be put right again? God does exist. And not only does he exist, he is glorious and all-powerful. And if God would answer our prayer, which I hope we are praying for revival, he could do it like that. He is the God of the impossible. And therefore, there is joy. Let Jacob rejoice, David says. Let Israel 
Be glad. Joy is the hallmark of the Christian. A Christian may experience pain and suffering, and the Psalms do have songs of lament. But the sign of being a Christian is gladness and rejoicing. The song of the Christian is set apart as intrinsically, that is by its very nature, intrinsically, evidently, that is you can tell when Christians are singing because it has this aspect to it, intrinsically, evidently, and overwhelmingly, that is whatever else is going on, joyful. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. That is, we say to one another, let's rejoice. Not just because of a prayer that God would do something, but because we who live on the other side of the answer to this prayer know what God did. We look back to Calvary and rejoice. The atheist says, I would believe in God if I could see him. And the Christian says, well, if you'd been born at the right time, you would have seen him. The atheist says, what about suffering? The Christian says, he suffered for us. The atheist says, where's your proof? The Christian says, he came, he died, he rose again. And he sent his spirit too. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. O breath of life, come sweeping through us, revive thy church with life and power. O breath of life, come cleanse, renew us, and fit thy church to meet this hour. Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, we say to each other, come let us adore him. Behold our king, nothing can compare. Come let us adore him. All people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Come ye before him and rejoice. Let's stand to sing.